was spending some time in Romans 8 before he penned the words of that hymn. So it's to Romans 8 that I want to ask you to turn with me this morning. I don't want to read the whole chapter, though that in itself I think is a crime, separating any of these words from the others. But I want to read the opening 17 verses of this, I trust, familiar chapter to us today. Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Well, amen. We'll end our reading, as we said there in verse 17, trusting the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. Let me ask you again to join me and bow our heads and our hearts in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we pause to address You upon Your throne of grace, We're mindful that your presence is everywhere at all times. When we even speak of coming into your presence in prayer, it is just an acknowledgement that we know we're already in your presence. But we would seek to clear our hearts and minds by addressing this living, our living and very present God. And we pray that now as we come to your word, this precious portion of your word that you will by the spirit that is so 
taken up in this chapter minister to us. We come with different needs. Lord, different levels of knowledge, different levels of experience, different levels of need, of struggle, different seasons of blessing. And we just pray that you will, by the Spirit, who is the author of this Word, and who indwells the heart of each one born from above, that you will take up a word in season as we read in the prophet of that servant, that you will take up a word in season for us and minister to us by your word today. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Romans 8 is truly one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And it is so for a host of reasons. Doubtless one reason lies in the fact that it is preeminently a chapter of assurance. It overflows with the certainties and the comforts of the gospel. How many of us, perhaps even daily, take refuge, if you will, in the 8th of Romans and the comforts and assurance of what it means to be a child of God. It is also a chapter that brings us to the end of the story. Now, Revelation may tell us of the culmination of history, but Romans 8 tells us of the certain destiny of each individual believer. It is also one of the scriptures, or places in scripture, that contains some of the scripture's most vivid promises for all of life that lies in between our justification and our entrance into glory. It's the chapter that tells us that no matter what, all things are working together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. This is a chapter, I say, that is precious indeed. This is one of those passages of Scripture. It can stand alone outside its context even. It's one that can be understood and proclaimed from beginning to end as a glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a chapter that many years ago now we took occasion to do a series on the whole chapter. Frankly, even from the beginning of our studies in Romans this time, the first time we've gone through Romans, I thought, well, when we get to chapter 8, I'm going to have to dust off those old messages or read them, and as I do often with old messages, throw them in the trash and start over, but do another series just on Romans 8. But I don't want to do that. I want to handle it pretty much as we've been handling the rest of the book, just kind of a paragraph at a time, following through the main argument of the book itself. So in some ways, I apologize today that we'll only do that maybe three messages or so from this chapter when every verse, sometimes every phrase from every verse is worthy of its own sermon itself. But I say while this is one of those standalone chapters, it, it, it has the whole Bible as a context. It is a chapter that the believer can look at without reference, if you will, to the preceding chapters and the following chapters because with a general gospel understanding, here's a chapter that has food for the soul on its own. 
But Romans 8 also has a context. It is in itself a part of the unfolding and enlarging progress of this careful treatise, this logical progression that the apostle, that the Lord is giving his church through this thesis, this paper, if you will, that is the book of Romans. This is, as we have said, uh, the Bible's most clear, most structured argument for what the good news of salvation really is. If you'll remember, as we suggested, the sentence, that thesis of Romans chapter 1. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Maybe that's a little more than a sentence. But there's the thesis, the gospel of Christ. And then we came into chapter 3 where we have the paragraph. As we suggested, many have said the most important paragraph that's ever been written. We paused and I had to confess my own argument with that for several years actually thinking there's stuff in Romans 5 that's more important, but I conceded, I laid down arms, that paragraph in chapter 3 is the what of the gospel. It's chapter 5 where we have fleshed out some of that how that's really so, so precious. So if we come and I say look at the progression of the book, I don't want to be simplistic but I think in these words that I'll give you here in a moment, there's a simple progression that is evident. There's, in a lot of chapters, Romans 8 among them, there's some hard turns of phrase. There are things that even men that are as closely connected to each other as men that sign the Westminster Confession of Faith that, that don't take every phrase in Romans 8 in the same way because there's some difficult things. But then yet, the main argument, even the flow of that argument, is so clear that you have to really be off base to miss it. But I say if we look at Romans and what we've come to and seen so far, in chapter 3, when we finally get to the paragraph, we have justification put before us. Chapter 3 is justification. Chapter 4 then brings us to by faith. He gives the historic example of Abraham and that he wasn't justified because of or even subsequent to his circumcision. He was in a justified state before he was ever circumcised. So chapter 3, justification. Chapter 4, by faith. Chapter 5, by imputation. The two Adams, representation, the vicarious nature of the work of Christ. Chapter 3, justification. Chapter 4, by faith. Chapter 5, by imputation. Chapter 6, not antinomian. Remember that great transition, and Paul does what he does in many of his epistles, but so frequently in Romans. He anticipates a question. If you understood what I just said, this thought's going to pop into your mind. If you understand Romans 5, that you're saved by the work of Christ, not by your own works. 
That the righteousness that counts for your legal standing and your entrance into heaven is a righteousness Christ perfected, that Christ performed, that Christ secured with no help from you, period. Then you're going to have this thought. If I'm not justified based in whole or even in part on what I do, my good works, then does it matter how I live? Chapter 6, not antinomian. And then chapter 7. Can we summarize chapter 7 by saying not legalistic? The chapter's wrestling with the flesh and its inability to fulfill the law of God. So, Chapter 3, justification. Chapter 4, by faith. Chapter 5, by imputation. Chapter 6, not antinomian. Chapter 7, not legalistic. Chapter 8, but part of a gracious golden thread of gospel work done for us and in us. Here is what Romans 8 is all about. Here's the context that leads us to this glorious chapter of assurance. Yes, assurance, we could say, is a theme of the chapter. But why? Because of the many, many things that this chapter tells us. And we've said already that this is a chapter that has as one of its prominent themes that it brings us to the end. It brings us to the glorification of every believer in Jesus Christ. But it also reaches back to the beginning, before time, whom he foreknew. Them he also did predestinate. Of course, we get to that golden chain of events that we'll come to speak of, Lord willing, in the next week or the week following. That order of salvation. So as we come to this chapter, this glorious chapter, This chapter, I say, brings us to that understanding that the gospel of Christ, this gospel work, this gracious golden thread of work done for us and work done in us. I want to review our outline of Romans 7. It's been a few weeks with our week of prayer and some guests and sickness intervening. Chapter 7 We outlined three messages simply on these terms. We are free from the law. You remember that law had dominion over all of us. We are free from the law, but the law is good. It just can't justify or sanctify us. So let's follow his argument on then into chapter 8. We come to verse 3. For what the law could not do. You see, he's he's continuing on his thought. What the law could not do. God has done, I say, for us and in Christ is doing in us by His Spirit. One of the giant underlying themes of chapter 8 is the work of the Spirit. We could almost say that chapter 7 is the chapter of the flesh. And chapter 8 is the chapter of the Spirit. And when I say chapter 7 is the chapter of the flesh, not merely flesh from the standpoint in which Scripture often looks at flesh as the old nature, the tendency towards sin, but even the new man, he doesn't have the power in himself 
in the flesh to fulfill the law of God. The law is weak, not because of any problem in the law. The problem is in us. So what the law could not do, God has done for us in Christ and is doing in us by His Spirit. The wretched man, and I want to underscore this, chapter 7 and all the debates that surround that, when we look at that and find it, Paul putting himself in as an example, that we find it is descriptive of the struggle in the believer. The battle with the flesh, the inability to perfectly obey God in the flesh. It is not a chapter of defeat. It's not a chapter of the the constant, perennial, backslidden state of every Christian. Sometimes people get that in mind, or sometimes they kind of start framing that as an excuse not to strive after holiness. No, the wretched man of chapter 7 is not only not the end of the story, it's not even the primary or the defining condition of the believer. Remember, chapter 7 ends on a note of victory, not defeat. And also remember that in Romans 7, as we said along the way, it's not so much Paul that's under discussion. It's the law that's under discussion. But Romans 8 and that victory that is spoken of in the closing of the chapter is just a prelude to Romans 8. Real, normal Christian living is Romans 8. Romans 7 is the temporary, if lifelong, intrusion of the old man that is being put to death piece by piece in this part of the gospel that we call sanctification. What I want to do today, and again, it's, it's difficult to look at a chapter where every verse should be a sermon, but it's just to take these opening 17 verses that we've read together and work through them. Not every piece, not every phrase, certainly they're worthy of it. But I just want to put four statements before you today to try and crystallize the teaching of these opening 17 verses. And even that is insufficient because what we do as our last statement really carries on and applies to the rest of the chapter 2. But I want to make these statements to you. I put them before you first. Christ has satisfied every claim of the law. It is against us. The second statement, and I'll repeat these, Lord willing, as we go along. The Spirit delivers us from the control of the flesh. This we'll find mostly in verses 4 to 13. Thirdly, the Spirit bears witness that we are heirs with Christ. And finally, as heirs, our inheritance of glory is certain. So these four statements, I say, to summarize these precious and very full opening verses of the chapter. Christ has satisfied every claim of the law against us. There's a sense in which all four of these statements you could summarize in one word. Justification, sanctification, adoption, 
and glorification. Those are four of the big key words in this whole thing that we'll look at next time called the order of salvation. There are other pieces of it that aren't specifically mentioned in this chapter, notably the beginning of the whole chain. Well, from our perspective, regeneration. You must be born again. John 3, the message we take to sinners. You need new life. You're dead in sins. So I say these four gospel terms are what are underneath our four statements that we've made. But firstly, I say Christ has satisfied every claim of the law against us. If you read from verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now let me just pause. This is why I was taken back that we came to Philippians 2 in our Scripture reading today. Because verse 3 is really an important Christological text in the Scriptures. Christology, Christological, the study of Christ. All the Scriptures teaching about Him. Well, it says here, God sending His own Son, that in itself speaks of His eternal Sonship. It's the Son that was sent. He didn't become the Son after He got here. That's its own debate. Been resurrected in recent years in the evangelical church. But it says He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And it's interesting and powerful as we see how the Spirit words this for us because there are errors on each end of the spectrum that are avoided by how carefully worded this description of Christ is. It doesn't say that He was sent in sinful flesh because the flesh of Jesus was sinless. It doesn't say that He was sent in the likeness of the flesh because the flesh of Jesus was real. It says He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh because the flesh of Jesus is both sinless and real. It shows how close He had to be to us in order to represent us. (coughs) He had to be taken from among us. It's the miracle of the virgin birth that provides for us the true humanity, the realness of the flesh of Jesus, and yet the sinlessness of the flesh of Jesus. But back now to our statement. Christ has satisfied every claim of the law against us. Commentators and scholars struggle when you look at verses 3 and 4. Is Paul talking here about justification or is he talking about sanctification? Now it's clear that in verse 3 justification's in view. We could even say it's clear from verse 3 that justification is foundational because he speaks of condemning sin in the flesh. He's opened this chapter saying there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. These are legal terms. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. 
You're either in a state of condemnation, you're under wrath, or you're in a state of justification, you're accepted. And so justification is clearly here. We can't exclude it. But then we come then to verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, I have to say, I'm ready to jump on that and, and keep that as part of the justification bandwagon. The righteousness of the law, that's fulfilled in us because it's Christ fulfilling the law for me. All very true. Chapter 5. But then it's speaking about it being fulfilled in us. And it's fleshed out by saying, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so really what we're seeing here, and I want you to listen carefully to me, this is important stuff. Justification and sanctification are never separated. Now, like I said, be careful here. What I mean by that is you never have one without the other. There aren't justified people that are never sanctified. Now, one of the errors, one of the cardinal errors of Roman Catholicism and other false doctrine is a confusion of justification and sanctification. Now, when I say confusion in the real sense of that word, they're, they're brought together instead of distinguished. The difference between what I'm saying, what Romans 8 is saying, and the Roman Catholic view is this. In Catholicism, justification and sanctification are brought together in such a way that our change of life our godly lifestyle, our good works form a part of the ground of our acceptance with God. There's a sense in which it is just justification for them. Us doing good is why God accepts us. And if we can't do good enough, we have to pay for that in the confessional through penance. And if we don't finish paying for it that way, then we have to, after life, pay for it in purgatory until we finish paying, and then we finally get to go to heaven. That is a works-based justification. It's God's work plus our works that gets us to heaven. That's why we distinguish justification and sanctification. It's Christ's work alone that gets us to heaven. It's Christ's fulfilling of the law alone that counts as our righteousness, as our legal standing, as our acceptance with God. But while they're not merged with regard to our acceptance with God, they're never separated. He doesn't say, I'll justify these people and I'll sanctify these people and I'll leave these justified people unsanctified. Justification and sanctification are distinct but they're never missing, either one of them missing in the life of a child of God. Romans 8 is a chapter that actually some higher life teachers draw from. They want to look at this fulfilling the law, this walking in the newness of the Spirit as a different layer of Christian living. That's not the point at all. It's a simple fact of new birth, of new life. And so I think 
that when we come to chapter or to verse 4 of our chapter, that the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit is speaking of the Spirit's work, of the newness of life in the believer, the one who has chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, been justified by faith in the work of Christ alone. Christ, and here's where we come back to, I say, verse 1 and 3, so clearly putting justification as foundational to this other work. Condemnation is removed from us. How can it be so? He's dealt with that extensively, but he just crystallizes it again in chapter or verse 3. What the law could not do. And again, not because of the problem of deficiency and imperfection in the law of God. The deficiency, the imperfection is in us. What the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And as we've seen already, those two parts of the law, its condemnation, its penalty, and its reward, that it was ordained unto life. God has satisfied all of that for me in the person of His Son, Jesus. Christ has satisfied every claim of the law against us. He said in chapter 7 that powerful illustration of the death of a spouse, we're dead to the law. It's dominion over us. It's condemning force. It's claims against us are gone. But the law is good. It just can't justify or sanctify us. And Paul speaks here in even that seventh chapter about delighting in the law of God after the inward man, inward man. But he has another law in his members, warring against the law of his mind. Brings him at times into captivity. He needs deliverance. Well, chapter 8 is the description of the deliverance. And here we see verse 4. The repetition of the opening or the closing phrase of verse 1. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh. All those efforts, all that resting in self that was the struggle of chapter 7 is gone. Now we walk after the Spirit. For they, verse 5, that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So this brings us to our second statement. The Spirit delivers us from the control of the flesh. And Paul enters into a sequence of verses and arguments contrasting the unregenerate mind and the regenerate mind. Contrasting those that are dead in trespasses and sins and those that have been born again by the Spirit of God. It's interesting that he uses that terminology of walking. We've emphasized along the way, steady, if unspectacular progress. But walking is a deliberate act. It's the direction of life. And these that are God's people, these that have been born again by the Spirit, walk in newness of life. Chapter 6. And so here, the Spirit delivers us from the control of the flesh. Now just look with me, and we have to hasten here, 
at the statements with regard to the ungodly. For to be carnally minded, verse 6, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You think of that. You can be an unregenerate Pharisee. You can be pursuing what you describe and fully expect to be good works. And yet be at enmity with God. And Christ exposed that. You've redefined my law in order to feel better about yourself. Is that being at peace with God? No, it isn't. That's wrapping the universe around yourself and not Him. Oh, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Now this takes us into the realm of systematic theology rather than exposition. But that last statement of verse 7 about the carnal mind, about the heart and mind of those that are outside of Christ, this is a powerful statement with regard to our doctrine of total depravity. Neither indeed can be. If you're outside of Christ, you're spiritually dead. You are dead in trespasses and sins. You need a miracle of regeneration. You need a miracle of new birth. It's phrased in Ephesians. We've talked about this in the past, about rearranging the commas in our English Bibles. We believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. When we're brought to faith in Christ as a Christian, it's a work of supernatural, regenerative, resurrection power. It is not something that the sinner has the inherent ability to do if you can just persuade him enough to do it. If you can use enough illustrations in your sermon to scare him to the point that he raises his hand. That's not the gospel. The gospel, yes, includes law work. The Spirit convincing us of sin. It's one of the operations of the Spirit. Christ so powerfully described in the upper room discourse. But the Spirit not only brings that convicting power, He breathes life. And here we read, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Verse 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You want to get somebody mad, especially a Pharisee or a self-righteous follower of false religion of any label? Tell him he can't please God. Tell him he's not good enough. Tell him all the stuff he's doing that his neighbor isn't doing still won't get him there. That's what brings up the rage against the gospel. They that are in the flesh, verse 8, cannot please God. But, verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And then he says, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ... He's none of His. Now there's really the underscoring of our statement from a few minutes ago. 
Sanctification and justification always happen in the life of every believer. You don't have justified people that aren't regenerated, that don't have new hearts. What is the mark of the new covenant? God's law written on our hearts. Well, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you're not Christ's. This is not written to a people that lack assurance to try and guilt them into raising their hand again. It's just a statement of the reality of the gospel. And sadly, it's a statement that 20th century evangelicals got wrong. They started telling people, you can raise your hand again and you can rededicate. You can do better. I mean, you're never going to be lost because you raised your hand the first time. That's not the gospel. That's a man-centered, works-centered, turning faith into a work. No, this is the gospel of power. The thesis of the book, it's the power of God unto salvation. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. The Spirit delivers us from the control of the flesh. We read verse 10, then if Christ be in you, and it's interesting here, you read and you can compare other scriptures, Christ being in us, us being in the Spirit, the Spirit being in us, us being in the Spirit. I saw one commentator raise my eyebrow, but it fits. There's mutual indwelling. You know, we speak about the indwelling of the Spirit, the Spirit living in us. We're living in the Spirit too. He says, if the Spirit, or verse 10, if Christ be in you, the body's dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And I think verse 10, if you, you follow on even the rest of this chapter, this is part of the already and the not yets of the gospel. Our justification is perfect. We're not going to be any more justified in glory 10 million years from now than we are today if we're a believer in Christ. But this body still, not only in that battle with the flesh of chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, because here, this chapter of victory, we're told in this chapter to mortify the deeds of the flesh. But the work being done in us that always accompanies the work done for us is work that won't be finished till we're in glory. But he says here, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. He's bringing us to resurrection. He's already anticipating the fourth point of the sermon, glorification. These are things that, again, aren't separated. And then he says, verse 12, and I find it interesting. It's a verse that I, or not a verse, it's a word I brought to our ministers at the Closing day of our week of prayer, we had the unusual opportunity to have two sermons and two prayer times on Thursday of our week of prayer because on Wednesday they got all the business finished. I left that presbytery early 
an hour early. Maybe it's because I wasn't there. They were able to get things finished. Am I the slow, what slows thing? I don't know. But Friday morning's preacher preached on Thursday afternoon because Friday mornings are sparsely populated. Men have to catch planes and so forth. So somebody had to say something Friday morning. I just took them to Romans 1. A world like ours and all the sins that we know so vividly described in the closing verses of that chapter. It's in a chapter like that that Paul says, I am a debtor. To the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise. You want to have a good gospel posture in your opposition to all the bad stuff of Romans 1 that's going on in our world today? Openly, happily, paraded? We're debtors. To the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise. And Paul brings us to that word again here. Therefore, brethren, we're debtors, verse 12. Not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. Another contrast between those that are born again and those that aren't. Those that are still dead in trespasses and sins live after the flesh. They're always there. Those that live after the Spirit are only occasionally there. It's an interruption when they're there. It's a battle when they're there. You battle with sin? You feel guilt and problems because of that? Think of it this way. I'm fighting this. I don't approve of this. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The fact that it's a struggle is an indication you're alive and you're not dead anymore. If we live after the flesh, they don't even struggle. They just live there. You shall die. But if through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And then he introduces another link in the chain. This is our third statement. The Spirit bears witness that we're heirs with Christ. Here's in our doctrinal formulations the word adoption. The Spirit bears witness that we are heirs with Christ. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You think of that struggle in Romans 7. The old man can't win that war. Who'll deliver us from this? Well, we thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been made alive. We live in the Spirit now. We're not just justified. We're sanctified. And we're going to be glorified. He says then, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. For you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We belong to a different family now. We belong to a different community now. We have different life. And then he says, verse 16 following, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit 
that we are the children of God. Here's where we have that bringing together of the objective and the subjective. Here's where it touches life, not just theory. The indwelling spirit, the delighting in the law of God after the inner man, the fighting against the old man, the mortifying the deeds of the flesh, all part of this newness of life, the law written on the heart now, and not just the deadness of a letter that I have no power to fulfill. No, now the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in me. I walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness that we are heirs with Christ. And then verse 17, our final verse for today. And if children, then heirs. Adoption, but there's more. There's inheritance. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. You think of this one. This one, the Father spoke from glory and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. One that He raised from the dead, giving divine testimony of the victory and the acceptance of His work and brought to His own right hand and seated Him there. There's a man in glory today. There's a mediator in our nature that is at the right hand of God. And we, as we read elsewhere, are seated together with Him in Christ Jesus. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Christ has satisfied every claim of the law against us. The Spirit delivers us from the control of the flesh. The Spirit bears witness that we are heirs with Christ, and as heirs, our inheritance of glory is certain. This is a chapter of assurance because this is a chapter of what it means to be in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I trust the Lord will take up and apply His Word to our hearts today. As I say, this is a chapter that could command our attention for a whole year in its own right. May God give us grace to see it in its context, to see the flow of its argument, and to rejoice in its truth. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come today We think of some of the phrases that follow even in this very book, in this very chapter. What shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? Take up the word. Lord, there are certainly words of encouragement and challenge, blessing, comfort, for everyone that is in Christ Jesus. And words of contrast, perhaps even if some here today are yet outside of Christ, 
that would awaken them to the difference between being dead and alive, between being ruled by the flesh or by the Spirit. So take up the Word, apply it to our particular points of need. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.